Well, good morning, church. Wow, that was robust. This is good. So some of you might know, but I turned 50 a few days ago. 50 years old, right? So people are like, you don't look a day over 60, which is nice. So if you're young and you're like 50 sounds old, you're right, 50s. And then if you're like older, you're like, oh, you're just a baby. You're only as old as you feel. Age is a number. Then I feel 75, so that doesn't work either. So, But 50 is like one of those numbers that you just feel like, like it's a milestone, 50, five decades. I told my father-in-law I might be halfway done my life at this point, you know, 50. And you stop and you think, you know, you, you do an inventory, maybe a little spiritual assessment. And so, so the sermon, as is often the case, is, is really born out of that, that season of me saying, Lord, ser- search my heart. Because there's areas where we know we struggle, and then there's areas maybe we're blind to it, or maybe, or maybe, I mean, if we're honest, there's areas where we're like, Lord, I'm not ready to deal with that yet. I'm going to put that over here. And as I, you know, pray and I think and, and I ask myself, Lord, am I, am I fully living for you? Am I, am I living out your call on my life? What are the things that are obstacles? What are those areas where I need your grace and your mercy? And so as I began to look and think, to consider my priorities, to make sure my life is aligned with God's life, to ask the question, which is the title of the sermon, who are you living for or what are you living for? You know, you hear Pastor Jamie and I use this phrase a lot. We say, we don't want to play church. You know, if there's anywhere in the world you should be able to come and be real, it's here. Right? Not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Jesus says it's for the, it's for the, the lost, you know, it's for the broken, it's for the marginalized, it's for the sinners I came to seek and save that which was lost. It's not for the righteous. And so I don't want to be here, and I don't want to just, I, I preached a sermon one time about removing the mask, right? And it was very, it was a lot of response to that, because I feel like in life we put on masks. And I think the worst thing we can do in a place where God wants to take our mask off is put on a church mask. Because I think we can get really good at putting on the church mask, I think we can say church stuff and, and do church things and that somehow that can be a substitute for a life with Jesus. Most of the people that Jesus railed against, most of the people that Jesus were most critical of were people in the church that grew up with the system but missed the heart of God. So what is the biggest obstacle in your life? I had to ask, what's the biggest obstacle in my life of, in my living sold out for Jesus? And so what would you say? What are those areas that you tend to maybe put a priority in your life? Is it money? Relationships? Reputation? Maybe it's accomplishments or status or power. And what we, what we need to realize is deep down inside, these are all ways where we can try to feel significant, where we think that in these things, in our relationships, in our status, in what we have, and, and the perception people have of us, that somehow that identity, that that's going to fulfill us. 
And I really want to ask the question behind that question. I really want to point to the heart of the problem, which we say all the time. You can go right back to Genesis, and you can see immediately when sin enters the picture, our relationship with God is severed. We don't have that intimacy anymore. But as a result of that, the very first thing that happens is the Bible said they were naked and they were ashamed, and so they hid. The very first thing that happens is fundamentally we get this realization that there is something wrong with me. And so we can spend our whole lives and we can, we can try to placate that. We can try to resolve that feeling. We can try to, 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 to satisfy that longing and we can say, well, maybe if I have enough money, or maybe if I have the right relationship, or maybe if I have the right reputation, and that's never enough, because it was never meant to be enough, because Jesus himself wants to be our source. Jesus himself wants to be that treasure, and so anything that we put on the throne of our hearts, anything that we say, this makes me significant, if, if it's not, I'm significant because I was created by God, I was created in the image of God, I am an image bearer of Jesus Christ. Every single human being created, every single human being that will ever be created has the potential to bear the image of God. Jesus came that we would set free, be set free from death and from our past, but we would set, be set free toward a future. God doesn't just set you free from your past. He doesn't just deliver you from sin and from death and just say, okay, now you can be a 2.0 version of yourself. Why don't you be a little nicer? Why don't you be a little better? No, he says, I'm going to set you free from the prison of self-centeredness, from the prison and trying to find your value from what the world says, and I'm going to set you free toward a new identity. You have the ability to be my ambassadors, to be my representatives, to express my love to a world filled with hopeless and dying people who don't know the love of God. I read somewhere once, your gift to God is who you become. Your gift to God, my gift to God is who we become, is the life we live. You know, think of it this way. If your kid co committed a crime and your kid was going to go to prison and you knew your kid, they had him dead to rights. He was guilty. He, he would deserved it. And I said, you know, I talked to the judge. He's a friend of mine. Listen, I'm going to go to jail for your kid instead. I'm going to do it. I'm a, I love you and your family so much. I'm going to do that. All I ask is that he'd make something of his life. You'd say, well, I understand that. And Jesus, God sent his son Jesus to die for you and for me. And here's what he says. Don't waste your life. Make something of your life. I didn't just set you free from addiction or from whatever it is, from bondage, from sin. I didn't just set you free from that so you could lead a mediocre life. I set you free from that so you could live a joy-filled, victorious life with meaning and purpose and value. So when people look at you, they see the face of Jesus. But here's what happens, church, and this is what I want to talk to you about. Is we get so good at and so focused on the exterior. So focused on making everything look like we think everybody wants it to look and we neglect the inner man. 
And I think in the Bible, again and again, you are faced with flawed individuals who make some huge mistakes, but who know repentance. I think of David, a man after God's own heart. David did some horrible things, but David knew repentance. And so we say around here all the time, it's not your past that's going to get in the way of the call God has for your life. If you're here and you've never heard that before, there is nothing in your past that's stronger than the blood of Jesus. It is not your past. But if you leave here this morning the same way you came in, it's your pride. It's the original sin in the garden. It's the source of all other sin. It's pride. It's thinking you know better. And I tell you, as sure as I'm standing here, you don't. God sets us free from sin and death and sets us free to an abundant life where we get to be used of him by his power and by his spirit to express the love of God in word and deed to the lost and broken. That's the call. Not to sit on the sidelines, not to talk about it, not to watch everybody do it. I say this week after week, and it's the cry of my heart. Because I, I preach and I talk to people and, and, and they're hungry and you can see that. And I, and I always say this, this taste and see that the Lord is good. Because my prayer, my heart is not just that you'd be encouraged by the testimonies of others. Not just that you'd read the scriptures and they'd come alive. But that you personally sitting here in this room for yourself can taste and see the goodness of God. To the point where like Paul says, you can say, everything I have Everything I've done, everything I am, it's incomparable. I can't even contrast it to being in Christ, Paul says, and being found in him. I give it all away. It doesn't even compare to being in Christ because Paul knows what it's like to go deeper. We said that back in January. We said for this year we wanted to go deeper. And I don't know about you, but we've gone deeper. And that process, it's never comfortable, right? but it's beautiful. And I pray that if you're here, that you allow him to go deeper, that you open your heart, that you open your spirit to the word of God, that you let it penetrate. Because I don't have any power up here. The word of God, the spirit of God is what has power. And so whatever I say, I pray that you quickly forget. forget. But whatever God says, I pray that that penetrates and that changes you forever. That this day be a turning point in your life. Our significance isn't tied to any of those worldly things. Our significance is tied to our character. Your gift to God is who you become. So who or what are you living for? Now I could ask you that. I mean, if I, if I looked at your social media to determine what was important to you, what would I say? Or I read this, because this is like indicting. This is like, I remember reading a pastor say once, if you want to see what's important to somebody, don't ask them. Just look at their checkbook and their calendar. Where do they spend their time? Where do they spend their money? Where do they spend their resources? Where's their heart aligned? What motivates them? What's their priority? Because we all have a worldview, and when we talk about apologetics at some point, we'll discuss that. But you, by, by default, everybody gets a worldview. In other words, it's a way that you interact in the world. It's a way you make choices. It has to do with your ethics. It has to do with the way you think of four questions, origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where do we come from? What, what, how do things start? Meaning. How do, we, how do we determine meaning and value and beauty and truth? What are those things? 
And then, and how do you make decisions, ethics, morality? How do you determine right and wrong? And then where do we go? What happens in the end? Is there a, a meta-narrative? Is there a larger story? The answer to those things is yes, but we have to be willing to allow God, to allow his word to reveal to us the truth of who he is. And we have to prioritize our relationship with him. See, too often where, we're, I mean, we rightly should be concerned with our reputation, with being honest, with how people see us. But we should be more concerned with living for an audience of one, with how Jesus sees us, with how we behave when nobody's looking. Where does our affection lie? Where does our adoration lie? This is a sermon about our inner lives. Because if we're not careful, we will walk away from God. He will, his calling will take us to a place where he's asking us to make a choice and we'll walk away. Or even worse, we'll be far in our heart. But we'll still be here. We'll still show up. We'll still do church stuff. But in our heart of hearts, like Pilate standing before Jesus himself asking the question, what is truth, will have missed what it means to be a Christian. Jesus does a lot of things for us. He sets us free from hell. He sets us free from death. He sets us free from sin. He sets us free from self. But the greatest thing he does for us is he invites us to abide in him. He invites us to make our home. That's the best way to, to define that. To make our home, to be most comfortable in his presence. And that's what I want from you. The Bible teaches us about God. It shows us the heart of God and the character of God so that we would know God. I think in, in the church today, I think we're really good about knowing about God. But sometimes I think we neglect taking the time, prioritizing what we need to, to know him. There's so many distractions. You know, there's so much noise. Who or what do we worship, if we're honest? 1 Samuel 16 says, 16, 7, sorry, says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, I remember, being, uh, I remember being in Teen Challenge, and, you know, I'll, I'll try to make this quick, but I had, I had a, psycho, a psychology professor that years ago, when I was like a junior in high school, I was being disruptive in class, which I know is really hard to believe, and she was, and I said, and she like said something to me to try to embarrass me, and I said, oh, I don't know, I'm going to be a failure, and she said, no, you're not. You're probably going to be a success despite yourself. And I was like 17 years old, and I thought, what a horrible but profound thing to say to a, to a kid, you know? And, and I, never really, I never really forgot about that. And I remember being in Teen Challenge and, you know, maybe six months in the program and I got to the point where, like, I could break the rules and people wouldn't say anything to me. And I remember being in my room one night and you couldn't listen to music during the week and I had my headphones on and one of the leaders walked in and he saw me and he just kind of laughed and walked out. And in a moment I had that, yeah, I'm cool. And then in like those moments where God does the spirit, 
said, you're going to leave this place the same way you came in. You're going to leave the, the only person you're fooling is you. Nobody's winning here. You're going to pretend. You're going to work on the outer man. You're going to clean up the outside. And you're going to leave here the same way you came in. And I was wrecked for some stupid little thing. Some stupid little compromise. Listening to music during the week that I justified. Oh, no, there's a reason I need my music, blah, blah, blah. And so what I want to encourage you is that God wants to work in your life in ways that you can't fathom. And your effectiveness is tied to your surrender. Your effectiveness is, so what God wants is not somebody that has all kind of talents and abilities. He'll give you those. He gave you those. He wants somebody that says, all I have is yours, Lord. Use it for your glory. People say, I don't don't want to be rich. I don't want to be, I want to be whatever God wants me to be. I want as much as time and money and relationship, whatever he wants to give me, I want that to leverage for him because it's his kingdom I'm building. And he'll decide what gifts to give me and he'll decide what relationships, he'll move it around. I just want to be willing to honestly say, I am available to you, God. That's the cry of my heart. That's my cry for you, that you don't make yourself unavailable. That you're not the the clay that's on the shelf. Oh, don't you look so nice? Look at everybody. They're on the shelf. And God says, I didn't design you to be on the shelf. I designed you to be a trophy of my mercy and grace so the whole world can see if God can work in your life. Maybe, maybe he can work in mine. See, probably one of the most misquoted sayings by Christians is preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Poor St. Francis never said that. What he did say most closely resembling that is if you're walking to go preach, you're walking better be preaching. He was trying to fight against the hypocrisy, the same hypocrisy Jesus fought against, which is that the inner and outer man don't line up. Not that we're not perfect. It's not legalism. Because the love of Christ is not just where we find our identity, it's the source of our life and ministry. If the love of Christ overflowing you isn't the source of your ministry, you're doing religion and you're going to burn out. And if you don't walk away physically, you will have walked away in your heart. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Two stories from scripture. We'll probably just get into the first one and next week we'll look into the other one. But I want to look at the rich young ruler and the prodigal sons. And it's not the story of the prodigal son. It was never meant to be the story of the prodigal son. The titles got added to our Bible later. If you look at that, Jesus begins and says, there was a man who had two sons. And we'll get into that next week. But the prodigal son was not the son we thought was prodigal. And the son who was lost is not the son we thought was lost. See, it doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you've done before today. What are you going to do now? How are you going to respond right now? The enemy of progress in the spiritual life is not as much laziness as it is busyness with all the wrong things. The enemy of progress in the spiritual life is not as much laziness. It can be. But it's busyness with all the wrong things. We got time. 
My wife tells me all the time, you make time for what's important and you just can't argue against that. You make time for what's important. I think we have a priority problem. I think we're not allowing the inner man to be renewed as Paul talks about, right? 2 Corinthians 4.16. This is why we never give up. He's saying even when you're discouraged, this is why you never give up. He says, though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man, our spirits are being renewed day by day. Some of us, that's not happening. So the outer man is wasting away and the world's getting worse and worse and relationships are getting worse and people, are, unsaved people are acting like unsaved people and the whole thing's happening. And Paul's saying, well, be encouraged because your inner man's being renewed day by day. And some of you are like, no, it's not. And you wonder why you feel defeated. And you wonder why you give in to temptation instantly. And you wonder why you don't have joy. And you wonder why you don't want to pray. And you don't, you don't want to read the word. And you wonder all these things. But all you've allowed is the noise of the world to infiltrate. And you haven't made space for that still small voice. For that Jesus who looks right into your situation and says, come to me with your weariness. I want to give you rest for your soul. And he says, take my yoke upon you. Walk with me. Live with me. Establish my patterns as your patterns, my rhythm as your rhythm. Jesus was busy, but he was never hurried. He had a lot of activity. But if you watch what the disciples thought was an interruption, Jesus would say, no, you don't understand. This is the reason I'm here. So I used to think in my, in my life that, you know, I'm so busy, I gotta stop the busyness. And good luck, because sometimes seasons are busy or life is busy. We can't stop the busyness oftentimes. But if we new, renew the inner man, if we allow the spirit and the word and the body of Christ to renew the inner man, that we don't have to live hurried. We don't have to live in chaos. But we got to allow God full access. We can't continue to neglect the inner man. Or we will walk away from Jesus literally, or we will walk away from him in our heart. Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Our heart should break for the things that break the heart of God. In Jeremiah 50, verse 6, it says this. My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Who's the shepherd in your life? Who are you following? Where do you find your rest? Let me pray, Lord. I pray that this morning, next week, God, I pray that you do what none of us can do, God, which is increase our hunger and thirst for your presence, God. We believe, help our unbelief. We trust, help us to trust more. We long for more of you, God. Help us to remove the distractions and the noise. Help us to create space to be in your presence and to listen, to not talk so much, but to listen, to hear from you. God, we pray that you would speak to us now, speak deeply to each one of us, to our hearts.
that our lives would bring you more and more glory. That's what we desire, God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this story is known as the rich young ruler. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to read it from Mark. I like to call the poor young rich man. It is to me one of the, if not the, most profoundly sad stories in all of Scripture. It begins in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Verse 22 says that this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. I can't help every time I read that scripture And the reason I love it in Mark is because of that verse 21 where it says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. And if you're a parent, you understand this because you can think of times where you sat with your child and they were going through a a situation, they were going through a a, a circumstance and, and you knew the love you had for them, you knew the experience you had, you knew what you wanted, and you were giving them advice, you were telling them what's best, and they had that glazed over look, right? You know. And there's that frustration as a parent thinking, if you only knew how much I love you, if you only knew what I knew, if you only knew that I know that this lesson is gonna be more painful for you than it has to be, if you only knew how much I loved you and how much I'm offering. And I, and I have to ask myself in my life, how many times has Jesus looked at me and had that love for me and asked me to do something? I tried to deal with something in my life where he knew because of my flesh, my sin, whatever it was, he just knew that I was going to do what I was going to do. You know, it's interesting in the scriptures, verse 22, where it says, at this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. It's always curious to me why that's there in one sense, in another it's not. Because we know that sometimes we, God, God makes clear through his word, through his spirit in our heart, we know. And sometimes we have situations with God and he's made clear what we should do. We know what we ought to do. But we've already decided in our mind that we're not going to do the right thing. We're going to do what we want to do. And the thing is, in our heart of hearts, as much as in our mind, we want to tell himself, if this guy's money didn't fulfill him up until this point, it wasn't going to fulfill him now. The reason he went away sad is because he recognized he was a slave to the same thing. 
Because this story is not about money. Jesus also doesn't say, hey, he doesn't, he doesn't placate it. He doesn't try to make it sound a little nicer. He doesn't go, look, you have a lot of money. Let's take a little bit of that. Let's give it to the poor. Why don't we hang out for a little bit? No, this is what he says. Anything that competes with me must be completely eliminated from your life. That's the message of Jesus over and over again in the Bible. Pastors say things and we try to like bring in the crowds and every time Jesus spoke to a crowd, he shrunk the crowd. Why do you think that is? You think he didn't love them? Or you think he loved them enough to tell, to tell them the truth? See, in the exchange, you can see right now, this guy had all kind of stuff going for him. First of all, he was eager. He went running up to Jesus. He was enthused. He was encouraged. It also says he knelt down before him. If you're a person of status and wealth, particularly in that culture, you don't kneel down before anybody unless you recognize. So he was eager. He was humble. He also had some vague interest in spiritual things. It's, it's an interest, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that it was just enough. So in other words, the question he asked is, what must I do to go to heaven? What must I do to have eternal life? And, and if we're honest, I feel like the rich young ruler is kind of like, you know, the American dream 21st century churchgoer. Hey, my life's going pretty good here as I pursue the American dream. What do I got to do to get heaven? That's the question he asked. And the answer, what Jesus is saying is, I'm heaven. Everything you seek, everything you long for is me. And so what you got to do is you got to remove anything in your life that competes with me. And he went away sad. Because, and it says, because he had great wealth, he must have just thought, I don't know. I got kind of a lot of money. So close. It's interesting in, in the scripture, I don't know, it almost seems like an interjection, but in verse 19, Jesus says, you know the commandments. And then he lists six of them. Not in order. And he only lists the six that have to do with, this ten commandments, four have to do with the way we interact with God, six have to do with the way we interact with each other. And it almost seems like the, the young man was interjecting. Teacher, he declared, I've kept all these. It almost seems like as Jesus was going through them, he sort of interjected. No, 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 wait, I got that right. But see, Jesus hadn't yet got to the part where it was how he dealt with God, how he interacted with God. This is just how he did on the outside. So you had somebody who's eager, who's humble, who is spiritual, or who certainly had a longing beyond this world. Because everybody else would say, I mean, if this guy talked to his friends, they would say, you got it all, man. You're young, you're rich, you're, you got status, you got everything. But he knew deep down inside he didn't have everything. And then we read, uh, we said a couple weeks ago, we talked about the movie The End of the Spear with Jim Elliott, the missionary who was killed. And he had a quote that, that's pretty applicable here. And he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus had offered this man everything. Everything. He said, look, Give it all away. Come follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. 
and we read this story and we think it's about money or we think it's just about him and it's about us. It's about every time Jesus says, will you give that to me now? And, and we walk away sad because we're not ready to. And he looks at us with that love. And he says, if you only knew, if you only knew how much I love you and the plans I have for you and how incomparable it is with the best life you can put together, the best thing you can imagine. Ephesians 3.20, we say it all the time, now to him who is able to do, and I love this phrase, immeasurably more. God doesn't want to just meet you in your situation and change it a little bit. He wants to do immeasurably more, beyond measure. He wants to do what you can't fathom in your life. Are you going to let him? See, the rich young ruler, at any point, he could have, he I like to imagine a time where he was, you know, you know maybe a, a few months later, where, where you know, like the, prod, like the first of the prodigals, like he returned and said, you know, I messed up, I get it. And here's the opportunity you and I have. We can. It doesn't matter you yesterday. It doesn't matter in your life what you've put on the throne of your heart. It doesn't matter where your affections lie right now. You can leave here. And you can say, Lord, search me. Bring to my attention those areas I need to give you, God, and help me to give them to you. I want to open my hands, pry my hands open, because when God takes, he replaces it with immeasurable grace, immeasurable mercy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, made an observation about this scripture. He said, the difference between us and the rich young ruler is that he was not allowed to solace his regrets by saying, never mind what Jesus says. I can hold on to my riches, but be a little less detached. Despite my inadequacy, I can take comfort. God has forgiven me my sins, and I have fellowship with Christ. No, it says he went away sorrowful. And he went away sorrowful because he would not obey and because he would not obey, he could not believe. In this, at least, the young man was honest. See, as sad as it is, I think, and we'll get to it next week, I think the saddest thing is, is to stick around. Is to keep doing the religious stuff, but with a heart far from God. Not loving people the way he loves them. Becoming religious and cynical. You know why people have a problem with the church? is because when they see us, most of the times they see the Pharisees before they see Jesus. I'll own that. If you won't, that's fine, but I'll own that. In my life, that's been true. Where I had an opportunity to express the love of Christ, and I came across as an arrogant... I told people I used to be an arrogant atheist, and then I became an arrogant Christian. Concerned with winning a debate rather than winning a soul. Because he would not obey, he could not believe. If you say you believe, but you don't obey, question what you think you believe. If you don't like that, Jesus says it this way, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you know who I am, 
If you understand what it is I offer you, if you get what this life is about, not what you accomplish, but who you become, if you understood that, then you would follow me. And every time in life, in in my life, in your life, in the lives of people we look around, every time they don't live this out, every time they don't internalize this, every time they pick something else other than Jesus, the wound persists, it festers, and they still feel alone, restless, ashamed, insignificant, afraid. And to this, Jesus says, come to me. The Christian life doesn't just begin with loving Jesus. Loving Jesus has to ground everything we do. And when we get to heaven, there's not going to be a quiz on what we knew. God's not going to list all the stuff we did very publicly for everybody to see. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, in other words, if I have, if I am eloquent in speech, if I have the ability to to move emotion, if I am the most eloquent in my speech, but I have not love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, I'm just noise. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and if I give my body over to hardship that I might boast... In case you thought the story of the rich young ruler, like Jesus was saying, well, if you give all the money, that's, that's what'll do it. Paul says, if you do that, but you have not love, you have nothing. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. How can we receive that love and not be conduits of it? How can we receive that forgiveness? You know, we, we talk about grace and mercy when it's us, right? When we're the recipient, but we do something wrong. We, we talk, we, we, you know, we talk about we're wronged by somebody else. We talk about justice, right? Justice. It's a double standard. We keep saying here about being loved back to life. Allowing the love of Christ to, to change us. To set us free again, not just from our past, but to a future. That we can be used of him. So many things he had going for him. So many things he did right. And so many things he understood. He was eager. He was humble. He was young. He was spiritual. He was concerned about eternal things. He was religious. But he was still lost. He fasted and he tithed and he went to church and he knew the law, but he wasn't born again. He had a hunger in his soul, but he wasn't saved. He kept the commandments insofar as they had to do with how he reacted with people, but he didn't have a relationship with God. He was one of those people to whom would, Jesus would say, I never knew you. Well, but Jesus, I did this and I was at that. And, I, and it was like, I, we never had a relationship 
Many of us as Christians become way too concerned with just how the world sees us and not enough concerned with how we look to God. John 15 says, abide in him and you will bear much fruit. Our job is the abiding. Our job is the submission and the surrender. He'll do it. It doesn't say if you abide in him and you have ability. If you abide in him and it, no, it says if you abide. If you abide, if you make your home, if you dwell, if you seek to be a follower of Jesus, he's going to cause your life to bear fruit. And then, and I know it's a little discouraging that it's there, but it's beautiful when it happens. You think, well, if I do the right thing, if I'm plugged in, if I bear fruit, he's going to cut me a break. No, the Bible says then you'd be pruned wise, you can bear more fruit. Because, and I know you might, you might not get this message everywhere, but because it's not about you. Or it's certainly not just about you. It's about you, it's about me, and it's about those who haven't heard. That's our call, church, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to preach the gospel. Apart from him, we can be religious. We can be nicer. But eventually, if our faith isn't grounded in an intimate and growing relationship with Jesus, we will continue to place idols on the throne of our hearts. And eventually, we will walk away. My prayer, my heart, is that you would be honest with God. That you would recognize, what are those areas in my life? What are those strongholds? What are those places? Maybe it is your money. Maybe it's a relationship. See, we're, we're on guard for the things that are really bad, right? Everybody's on guard of the things that are obviously sinful. What we're not on guard against as much is the subtle things, is putting things that are good or morally neutral, putting our spouse or our children on the throne of our hearts. See, that, or, or our job, I mean, we're supposed to do good. We put that, that's on the throne. It was a teaching pastor, John Ortberg, and I heard him speak one time, and he said, you know, we all have a mission. It's our stated mission. It's the call of God in our life. And most of us, if we know what that is, we're trying to walk in that. And everybody's on guard against going that way, or everybody's on guard against going that way. When the enemy tries to take you off mission, you know that's off mission. He says, but we always have a shadow mission, and the shadow mission is subtle because it looks very close to God's mission for our life. And if people don't know us, it can see, we can confuse, we can confuse, we can lie to ourselves that, ah, this is, this is similar. And the problem is that the longer time goes, the further and further the gap, until Jesus is way over here, and my mission is taken over, and I don't even know what it was he wanted me to do anymore. The only thing God wants from you is the only thing he gave you, which is your will. That's what he wants back. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It is a life for a life. And everywhere in Scripture, when Jesus had the opportunity to soften the blow, he spoke truth. He spoke truth in love. The Bible doesn't say Jesus was 50% truth or 50% love. It says he was full of love and he was full of truth. That means he always spoke to the question behind the question. He always cut to the chase. And the, the point that he's making in that story is if there is anything in your life at all that competes with the love and affection of Jesus, if you even knew what Jesus offered you, if you even believed for a minute, you would do whatever you could to eliminate that from your life. 
And if you did that, you would look and you would recognize that you have gained everything and lost nothing at all. The Bible says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Jesus bought you and I for a price, church. And that price was death on a cross. And he didn't say, your life was a mess, maybe this will make it less many messy. He said, I want to set you free. I want you to live victoriously. I want to live through you. I want people to look at you, and I want them to see me. And if you say, well, I don't know, he can't do that in my life. Well, he's not limited. He certainly can. And I, we've already said, your past isn't going to get in the way. There's no sin in your life that's more powerful than the blood of Jesus, but your pride will. You can leave here the same way you came in. But we'll see next week with the prodigal son. He was doing the right stuff with a the wrong heart. John ten twenty seven says, "My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me." Do you hear the voice of Jesus? Do you really hear the voice of Jesus? Do you know him? And is your desire to follow him above everything else? There was a movie, don't watch it, it's probably bad language. I just, for some reason, this popped into my head. There was a movie years ago called Heat. Anybody saw that? But at one, they're bank robbers. It was like Val Kilmer, all these guys, Pacino, De Niro, they're all in it. And at one point, the guy says, you can't have anything in your life that you can't walk away from in five minutes if the heat's around the corner. They're bank robbers, right? And I think in my own life, I think there can't be anything in my life that you can't be willing to give up fully if Jesus calls you to give it up. There can't be anything. Because if there is, that thing is your idol. That thing is on the throne of your heart. And that thing will never satisfy. And it'll never fulfill the longing. And it'll never make you significant. But Jesus will do all those things. And he wants to. And it breaks his heart when we don't let him. And I think of how many times in my life Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at Brian and loved him. But Brian was an idiot. And Brian was going to go be an idiot for another year or two, whatever it was, right? It doesn't matter what this morning looked like for you. It doesn't matter what you have on the throne of your heart right now. All that matters is that you would give God full access and allow him to do what he wants to do and what he will do. What Pastor Jamie just read, what he promised to do. Continue the good work in you until he comes again. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. So what is it that has you prisoner? What is an obstacle to you? Maybe it's an unhealthy thing, pornography, a bad relationship, materialism, greed. Or sometimes maybe it's something that's not inherently bad, your family, your job, striving to to please man. All God wants from you is your heart. He doesn't want a divided heart. And you and I were created to worship God. God exists in a perfect relationship. And we were created, we were invited into that perfect relationship. God is relational by nature. 
And so it's okay. We've said before, like Jesus in Gethsemane, it's okay to pray, Lord, would you change the situation? Lord, would you show up in this circumstance? But it is critical. Also like Jesus, we say, but you know, it's not about what I want. It's what you want to do through me. So your will be done. And here's his promise. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. And you can have a peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus will walk with you. A.W. Tozer said this, I want the presence of God himself or I want nothing at all to do with religion. I want all that God has and all that God is or I want nothing at all. I read a book and it talks about we are what we love. And it said this, not only are we all in a process of becoming, but we are in fact becoming what we love. We are to a large degree the sum of our loves and we will of moral necessity grow into the image of what we love the most. Love changes us, it molds us, and it transforms us. What we love is therefore not a small matter. It is not to be taken lightly or shrugged off. Rather, it is of present, critical, and everlasting importance. It is prophetic of our future. It tells us what we shall be, and it predicts accurately our eternal destiny. Loving the wrong object twists and deforms life, and it makes it impossible for that life to display the image of Jesus. To me, this is the saddest story in the New Testament. A man who is in one moment eagerly running to Jesus and the next walks away profoundly sad, filled with regrets because he didn't recognize who Jesus was, what Jesus was asking, and what Jesus was offering. Maybe you're here today and you are this man. Maybe you've walked away from Jesus. Maybe you found yourself sad. Today's the day. As the, as the service closes and the altars are open, you can come up, you can stay where you are, you can be prayed for, but today's the day. It is never too late to return to him. I've said before and I said it preaching that we don't surrender to be done. We surrender to begin. What you think is the end is God's beginning. And so I pray that you don't leave here holding on to what you're holding on to, but that your hands are open for what God wants to give you. Because the basic needs of man cannot be satisfied by the possessions of fame or fortune or anything in this life. The world cannot satisfy the soul of man, but Christ can. And Christ does. Amen.